Hope you all are doing well. We are in a series that's a year long called The Journey. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we'll be today. Um, this book right here is called The Journey. It's not actually a book at all. It's just a Bible reading plan. Uh, and if you don't have one, you can walk back here to the back table. And there are extra copies back there. They're free for anyone. We've got plenty um, and we want you to take it. What we're doing as a church is reading through the Bible together in a year, and we're using this book to do it. It's got every day a, a, a page where it tells you four different places in the Bible to pick or to, to read from. And as you read those particular four, what we do uh, on Sundays, <clears throat> each, month, each month we pick one of those books of the Bible, and we preach through that book of the Bible as we're reading so uh, this particular month, we're starting something new. You can you see it's called Fields of Harvest. Basically, the, uh, the readings of Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is what we're doing right now. And as the video explained, we're going to be talking about who Christ is in Colossians um, and what are some of the things we're supposed to do and live like in the Colossians, 2nd, 1st uh, Thessalonians. And then the rest of 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, we'll talk a little bit about, about what it means about his second coming. So who he is. Uh, how do we live until he finally comes back? That's what we're doing this particular month. Uh, the way we structured it is we just picked books of the Bible that we haven't preached through yet as we're reading through. So um, we picked uh, things like some of the Psalms. We picked Romans. We picked Mark. We picked different books uh, that we haven't already preached through because there's a lot that we've already preached through in our kind of short six years from uh, Philippians to Genesis to Matthew to... Y'all remember Matthew? That took like forever. Um, but all these different books that we uh, have already preached through. Uh, Matthew, by the way, was like 90 sermons, I think. Um, it took forever. Um, but what we're do- that's what we're doing right now in this particular series is uh, preaching through books of the Bible that we're reading through in the journey. So you can go ahead and grab one. The sermon hadn't officially started, so you can feel free to walk back there and grab one of those books actually anytime. So um, and in that book, there's actually a place to write sermon notes. So every six pages... Uh, there's a blank page that says sermon notes, and it goes with the readings of that particular week. So today, as I said, we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we'll start at verse 15. Um, the second thing I was just, this is really has no point, which, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you get coffee here, um, the test that we're going for is your sanctification. We want to see just how patient you can be to get the the, drip, the drips to come out to finally... It's ridiculous. we got to fix that. I know it's been like that a little while. Um, I would say I promise next week we're going to ha- finally have coffee machines that work, but I don't want to make that promise because I could forget. So, But we're hopefully going to have better coffee pots from now on and not those ridiculous ones that we have. Um, that's a side note, and it really didn't have any bearing on anything. So um, what I want to do is... I, I, I wasn't here last week. Um, and I was, I was out of town preaching and, uh, because I wasn't here, um, and I wanted to kind of speak publicly to the church at least once to kind of talk about some of the things that are going on in regarding of all the, the legislation that's, it's not even legislation, whatever's happened, you want to call it passing in, in our, in our land. And I just wanted to read a Psalm. This is kind of my answer for us as a church to, to wonder what, what's going on. What do we do? Let me just give read one little psalm, and I'll maybe make one statement, and that's, that's kind of the answer, and there's not much more we have to say. Psalm 99 says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earthquake. The Lord is great Zion. He is exalted over the peoples. Let them praise your great 
and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave him. Our Lord, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So with everything that's going on, let me just say this. The Lord Christ is king, and he will continue to be king. And that we can press into, and that we can hope in. And over anything that's happening in our nation right now, or has happened, or will happen, the truth is, is that the Lord is king, and we want everyone to know that the Lord is king. So you don't need to fret we don't need to be too upset. This isn't our home anyway. And one day we'll be in our home with Christ. Meanwhile, just remember that the Lord is king. We'll actually touch on it a little bit in, in the sermon today. But I want to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that we have. I pray that as we look into your word that you would be kind to us. That your spirit would come now and speak to us in power. I pray for myself, Lord. I know that I am absolutely dependent upon you and dependent upon your Holy Spirit. Cognitively, I recognize this all the time. But I pray, Lord, that in my mind and in my spirit, I would, I would give myself over to that truth, that I would not try to preach my own power. I would not try to manufacture anything in my own spirit. But instead, I would, I would recognize that my, I'm in absolute and utter need of you to come and not just speak through me to all of us, but to speak to me as well. So would you come now and magnify your name through your word? We pray that you would use this particular text to show us again who you are and that we would have just an awesome, awesome reminder of who Christ is. And that the truths that we hear today or maybe that we hear again today would have a ripple effect throughout our entire lives. That this stone dropping in the water and the ripple effects from it would be something that lasts for a long time in our life as we center in on the greatness of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had, uh, last week was Father's Day and my wife gave me a record player for Father's Day. And not only that, she actually had my mom um, get all my old records. And so for Father's Day, she gave me a record player and actually records to play, but specifically my old records that I grew up playing. So some of y'all think that's really cool. And some of y'all think that's really lame. And some of you don't know what I'm talking about. So records are like these, they're round and you put them there and you get a needle and you stick it on there and it plays music. That's what they are, Andres. You've probably never seen one before. Um, but there's these things called records. I know you have round things called CDs and they laser or whatever how it works. But um, there's these things called records that you put on there. Um, and so what I did is I got all the music and, and, and actually I don't just have music, but I actually had old storybooks as well. Um, so you put on the record and you play it and you can read the story as the record plays. And so we watched Scooby-Doo and listened to Scooby-Doo book and we did Lone Ranger. 
And even I found a five record series of the Gremlins. And I let my kids have one each day. There's little cliffhangers. And I made them like feel the weight of the cliffhanger. Kind of like how I felt each week with Lost. I want them to feel how it felt. Um, but anyway, so as we went through the record player, went through all the things, um, as we listened to all these old songs and books on record, um, the nostalgia for me was just really thick. Like it was just an amazing kind of sense of remembering 30-something years ago, and I mean, I used to wear these records out. I'm surprised they work, and I must have done a really good job not scratching them. But uh, the nostalgia in the room was so thick, I could literally like kind of brush it away with my hands, just remembering how I used to listen to all these stories, you know, the old songs of, or, or, or stories of Lone Ranger. But the familiar things for us, I think, I think old familiar things for us that take us back, if you will, in our life. They're just kind of good for our soul as we remember some of those things um, to hear again, even if it's been a while. And in the same way, in the exact same way today, as we look at some of the old familiar things about our Savior, things that you've likely heard many times. I'm hoping that the nostalgia of the truths of Jesus that you've heard so many times will be as thick in the room as hopefully the worship that exudes from you as we think on these things and that it would be so thick in the room we could literally brush away the worship that's exuding from us because of these great truths about Jesus. Um, It's important for us to center in on and think about these things about Christ. L- l- let, me just, let me just read this. I-, I didn't read this first service, but I want to read this in this service because it's quite important for us as we go through life to know who Christ is and every day vigilantly seek out who he is. This- here's why. Understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. For people in these last days will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure than rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying such power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into household, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and lead astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These kinds of times are constantly around us. That's 2 Timothy 3. And the reason why it's so important is because those things are true, and we are constantly, whether you agree or not, maybe living in what could be some of these last days. We just don't have time for me to come up here and entertain you and, and play games with you and, and not teach the scriptures to you. Not try to put forth the most serious representation of Christ and what he wants for us. Week in, week out, this is why we do expository preaching, not whatever I feel like talking about that week. Because we don't have time to play games. It's quite serious for us as believers, not to withdraw and say, we need to be serious about Jesus and I hope they're doing good. But instead, as believers in Jesus, involve ourselves and engage ourselves so deeply in the culture, not to that we become like it, not that we try to redeem irredeemable things, but the things that the gospel of Christ can infiltrate and be a part of, that we, as the agents, the human agents, the arms of Jesus, are so involved in the world 
that we are transforming agents by the power of the Holy Spirit to see those areas, cultures, and people transformed by the gospel that they're coming to know Christ. So that the, these, these truths that I, I just read of these descriptions of the days of, of end times where people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, all those things that we can see lost people coming to know Christ and those descriptions aren't true about them anymore. And so we need to have, I think, a huge, stable, massive foundation if we're going to do that. And that's what I'm trying to build for us, either for the first time for you or again today. And these are sweet truths, but we want to build, and I'm going to, I'm not going to, Paul has, I'm just going to show it to you in the scriptures, this amazing foundation. Now, before we, we go in and look at these things about Jesus, I want to I I explain what my end goal for your soul is as you hear this. It's the difference between, and we say this quite often, maybe it's been a while, between exalt and exult. You probably don't use either one of those words too often. E-X-A-L-T, E-X-U-L-T. Exalt is giving praise to God. It's, whether it's in a worship song or bless God for that, thank you. It's, it's giving praise to God. While I am after you exalting God, I'm much more after, as you hear a sermon that deals with these great truths about God, not just exalting God, but exalting in God. The difference is this. Exalt is to praise God. Exalt is to glory or find your deepest and highest happiness and joy in praising God. So we want you to exalt. We want you to praise God. But more than that, we want you to exalt not just that you praise God, but because you get to praise God, it drives you to your deepest and highest joy. And that's only found in Christ that you get to praise God. So we're after exaltation, but the deeper levels of talking about these precious things about Jesus is after exaltation. That as you hear these, the most concentrated description of Christ's glories, that's the title um, in the Bible, as you hear these things, that it would lead you to exaltation. So you can see this. My daughter was telling me that this is almost a ridiculous type of uh, title. You can go ahead and put it up. Uh, the longest title maybe that I've ever used. The most concentrated description of Christ's glories in the Bible. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This particular text is sometimes known as a Christ hymn. Uh, it was possibly in the first century a hymn, and it was just about Jesus. All this particular set of verses does is just sing, if you will. I'm not going to sing. Uh, it's kind of the lyrics of a, of a hymn or a song. And they're all, all the words and all the thoughts and all the concepts and all the ideas are about Jesus and Jesus alone. So here's the trick for me, okay? Here's the trick. I'm not going to give you all a ton of application. It's not going to be like, as we're looking at the text, therefore you ought to go. Therefore, this is what you should do. This is therefore how your life should look. Instead, this is the foundation. It's, the goal for me is not necessarily for you to wonder what am I supposed to do. It's more about who am I supposed to know? Who is he? What does he look like? How am I supposed to understand who he is? So here's the foundation. And based on these things, then you'll just know how to live. So again, there's not a whole lot of application per se. Instead, it's just building this exaltation, this exaltation foundation for you. Because we're in the last days of what and knowing who Christ is, now that you know who he is, go live your life. And I'm sure there'll be some application. I can't help but say this is what you should do. Um, 
But the main goal of today is to build a foundation, either for the first time or again, of the sweetness of Christ. And all these things that you hear again would just be amazingly beautiful to you that you're reminded of all these sweet things that maybe you hadn't thought about about Jesus. And your worship just exudes from you. So as Charles Spurgeon, as we step into these uh, pages, he, he, writes in his, he writes in his commentary, admire this delightful passage in which the Apostle Paul seems to burn and glow while he describes our Lord and Savior. Maybe that's the end game for us all, that like the Apostle Paul, when we know who Christ is, we'll burn and glow these sweet truths about him, these concentrated description of Christ's glories, all jam-packed into five verses in 15 through 20. Now, I know that it says 14, uh, and I keep saying 15. It's because one of the truths are, are found in 14. So I just wanted to reach up and grab number 14 and say one little truth, and then we'll go down 15 through 20. Um, and I, there's 15. So I know that's a lot. And you're like, 15? Oh, gosh, I should have packed a bunch. Um, you're fine. I promise you're, gonna, you're, you're fine. Let's read 15 through 20, um, and then we will, we will jump in. Well, I'll, I'll grab 14. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, 15. Now, this is the Christ hymn. This is about Jesus. He is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." If you're founding yourself day to day having a, a wavering heart or a, a, your heart's grown cold to the things of Christ, I would suggest that you memorize verses 15 through 20. I would suggest that these amazing truths about Jesus would be a, a storehouse. I have memorized your word that I might not sin against you. That I have built up a, I've built up my storehouse is kind of what the concept of Psalm 119 is there, that you have built up a storehouse of great, sweet truths about Jesus. So as you're going through life and you find, and we all do, have a wavering or heart-grown cold to the things of Christ, that you can reach back and think about these amazing truths about Jesus and have those things presently in your mind so that whenever your heart might grow cold, you can remember, oh, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by him. For him, through him and for him, all things were created, whether rulers or thrones or powers or principalities or, or however it says, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's the head of the body. He's the church. Since we're the, church, the head of the body of the church, since he's the church and he's the head, that means we have full submission constantly because he's the head. And we have these things presently in our minds as we walk through and we find ourselves wavering or finding ourselves cold of heart. So, Let's go ahead and look at these, these 15 amazing truths about Jesus Christ. Um, and hopefully the end game for us all would be exaltation. A and maybe even new knowledge about this Christ who is our Lord. 
Some of these things might be brand new to you and you didn't know, oh, more greatness about Jesus. And you can scream out with the Apostle Paul like at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, oh, the depths and the mercies of, of, of this, I don't have it memorized, the depths and the mercies of God, who can know him, inscrutable are his ways. Like there's so many things about him that I didn't even know still. First thing, we're reaching up to verse 14 for this first one. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This first one is foundational, I think, for us with verses 15 through 20. If we want to properly exult in verses 15 through 20, then having this first one primarily, supremely, deeply think something for us um, that we are majorly affectionate about, then we have to have number 14. We have to have verse one, or number one, verse 14, memorized, or the sweet truths of it should invade our hearts. The fact that we have redemption in him, the forgiveness of sins, that in Jesus and in Jesus only, he has provided for us, not a means, but the only means by which we can have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. He is the only way that we can be forgiven for our sins and live eternally in heaven. And since he has richly provided for that for us in and of himself, by being the, not just the, the mediator between us and God, but the actual sacrifice that goes to the cross, when we exult in the fact that he is our redemption and our forgiveness of sins, then the sweet truths that are namely about him in verses 15 through 20 become all the more sweeter. So if you want to love the fact that he's the image of the invisible God, or you want to love the fact that he's the head of the body of the church, this number one should be premier in your mind. Jesus Christ is your redemption. He is the, not A, but only means by which you can have forgiveness of sins. The only means. So the only way to, I think, properly appreciate that is to know and remember who you were, which we'll get to at the end of the sermon. Know who we were before Christ to appreciate who we are in Christ. But in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The next thing or the next great amazing truth about Jesus is this. He is the image of the invisible God. Number two, he is the image of the invisible God. So um, Paul, we have to realize that Paul's using language and as he's using language, because language in and of itself is a finite thing, he's, he's grasping to try to use finite human language to describe the infinite. And that's impossible. The finite cannot fully, with all of its glory, describe the infinite. So language in and of itself is, is fenced in, if you will, and not able to describe the infinite. But he's still doing everything he can to describe with an infinite resource, namely language, describe what is the infinite God. And by doing that, he says he's the image of the invisible God. Image is, is like Greek for, the Greek word is icon. So he's saying that he is the exact replica, replication or representation of what God would be. And we think of that and we say, okay, then you've got God and then you just take God and you put him on a Xerox and you, that's a copy machine, and you stick him on there and you press the green button and they make a copy and you put God back up there and you say, look, here's my copy of God. And you would say, that's not God, that's a copy of God. It's an icon, it's an image of God, but it's not God. And so when you say that, that's where I'm 
that's why I'm saying we're running into the finite problem of language. Because when we say Jesus is the image or the icon of God, he's not a copy of God, like a piece of paper that's not really God. It just looks like God. Instead, he is God. And language just can't describe that for us. So when we say that he is the image of the invisible God, we know that God is invisible, that God is spirit, John 4, 24, and that man is made in the image of God, and Jesus Christ is in the image of God himself. But, as Colossians 2, 9 says, all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. Or it'll even say it later on uh, in this particular verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when we're talking about this, Hebrews 1.3 tries to say it as well. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So as we're saying that, God, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's not just a photo of God. And you're looking at the photo and you're saying, oh, look at this photo. The photo is God. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying Jesus is God like the photo. Instead, we're saying he's so much so an image of God, that when he stands forth from the Father, Jesus himself, he is God also. He is God also. The Son is also God. So, as we look at these particular texts, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're talking about Christ being God himself. No one has ever, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So now we have, we have the possibility or the ability to know God specifically and only specifically through Christ. So when we say Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what we're saying is that he is God. And now man has the unique, amazing ability to know God and one day see God if they're in heaven because Jesus, now that he's man, is always going to be human and God together. And we will see God one day in heaven for those that are in Christ. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the incarnation. That's whenever, that just means God became man. Whenever the incarnation happened, everything of God, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his wisdom, all of his power, Everything has now been made manifest to us in regard to God in the person of Christ. So that in order to pursue God, in order to know God, in order to be like God, it's all found now in Christ, Jesus Christ alone, the God-man. He is not just the image, but he is God. He is the exact replication. That's not even good words. He is God himself. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. Now, I said there's 15, and I probably should have told you this already. Um, you might not be able to write all these down. Try. I know you type A's are going to try anyway. You just Don't tell me what not to do. Um, so I know you're going to do it. But it's okay to not. It's okay to not write these down and just listen. Because all you really need to do, by the way, is just write down verses 15 through 20 like, you can just go to 15 and write. 15, he is the image. That's all these, these points are going to be. So if you want to just listen, feel free. Because all I'm going to do is just read you the Bible and, and put it in sequential order. Um, and some of them will be one at a time. Some of them will be two and three at a time because some of them go together. Um, the next one is this. He is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Again, this can be troublesome as you first read it because it can sound like... Um, the third truth, is, it can sound like, okay, when God the Father started creating, the first thing he created 
of all the created things was Jesus. So Jesus was the first created thing, and then you kept going after that. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that Jesus was the first thing that was created. Instead, when we say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, we mean that Jesus is the specially honored first and only son over all creation. So here's why I say that. There's, there's, two, way, things, there's two reasons. First, when we see this word, the firstborn of all creation, the word of can be tricky because it can be used in kind of two different ways. This of can mean He's the firstborn of creation. So of all things that are created, Jesus is part of it. Or it can also mean of all the things that are created, Jesus is over it. So you can say Barack Obama, he's the the commander in chief of the U.S. military. That would make you sound like he's, he's part of the military, which he kind of is. Or you can say Barack Obama, the commander in chief over the U.S. military. That's that second sense is by which we, we, we want to think here when we say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. So that's one way to know we're not talking about Jesus being a created thing, but instead he's over all creation. Now, like no one here reads Greek probably, and I don't even read Greek that well. I just took it a long time ago. So there's a second way that we can get to this conclusion right here in the text, in English. And it's really simple. And it's the very next few words of, the, of verse 16. It wouldn't make any sense, the next little part of 16, to say that Jesus was created. Uh, it only makes sense to say Jesus is over creation and that he was not created, but it has always been, because it says, for by him all things were created. So if we're going to say, for by him all things were created and he was created, then that doesn't make any sense, right? So by Jesus, all things that have ever been created were created by him. Therefore, when it says he's the firstborn of all creation, we have to understand that as meaning Jesus is over all creation, the Lord over all creation. He's in charge of it all. He's sovereign over everything in creation. So when we see he's the firstborn over all creation, what we want to highlight is that he is the first and only begotten son over all creation. Jesus is in charge of creation, if you will. Now, number four, five, and six all go together. They all come from the next verse. Here they are. And uh, I put it like this because I want you to see that Paul's trying to do something here. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. So there's really three things that Paul is trying to help you see about Christ and his work and the point of his work in creation. They are by him all things were created. All things were not only done by him, but all things were done through him. And not only that, they're not just kind of thrown out there to kind of haphazardly exist. And then he takes his hands off like a deist, like a deist God and walks away and hopes that everything works out and sees what happens. But instead, All these things were created for unique purposes, whether they end up being good things or whether they end up being bad things. All of those things are uniquely made for him. By him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. For him, all things were created. So when we say for him, all things were created, whether good or bad, all of those things will one day ultimately result in bringing glory back to him. And that's why he created them. All things, 
good or bad, all of them were created by him for the express purpose of one day ultimately bringing him worship. It may happen now as you're a Christian walking through life or even those who finally reject Christ and want nothing to do with him. In the end, the great judgment that he has, which we, we don't want, we don't want this for unbelievers. This isn't like a, we, we're not joyous over the fact that unbelievers will receive the great judgment. That saddens our heart, but that ultimately also will result in the glory of God. That Christ will receive glory in that. By him, all things were created. By him. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us, that's a plural word, by the way, let us make God in our image. So many times growing up when I heard Genesis 1.26, let us make God in our image, I always pictured this as the Father. Kind of nudging Jesus and waking him up and saying, Holy Spirit, where are you? Come around here. Let us make man in our image. But the proper way to understand Genesis 1.26 is not the Father. L- let, me, let me read Hebrews 1, and t- 1, 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So God used to speak through the prophets, but now he speaks through his Son. And then he says this, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus was through whom all the world was created, which means if I go back to Genesis 1.26, it's actually Jesus saying, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image by him, through him, for him. Jesus, we're talking about Christ. All things were created. So in this particular set of truths, these three things, What we're wanting to see here is that all of creation is not just done by Christ. He wasn't just present and accounted for at the day of creation, but he was the one doing it. Not only the one was he doing it, but it was done through him. And not only was it done through him, all of it was done for him and for his ultimate glory one day. So when you're reading this text, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Verse 16, this this is kind of a little application I want to make for our present day. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Jesus created everything. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. That that tries to sum up for us everything. Not just the things that are visible, but the things that are invisible. So not just trees and water and grass and food, but the invisible things like concepts, like family and love and time. Everything that is anything is a created thing and he created everything that's in heaven and on earth and everything that you can see and everything that's invisible, concepts. He created it all. And as he did this, he created it through him and he created it for him. So as we're reading verse 16, this is where it gets kind of interesting for us because what did he create? What did he create? And Paul points to something specific. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether, and you think, all right, there's there's about a million things Paul could list right here to say. About a million things he could say. Everything's created by God, whether heaven or earth, invisible and invisible, whether trees or water or oceans or people or, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he points 
to four things, and they all kind of fall under the rubric or the description of governmental agencies. Of all the millions of things he says, he lists that. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, whether, and then he says, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So he points to governing authorities or governing structures. And after that, he says, all things were created through him and for him. So all things were created through him and for him. But why does Paul here point to, of all things, governing authorities? And I think that that's, I think that this text is pretty important for us today. Maybe a lot of this is on your mind. Well, it serves as a great reminder. So let's do this. In the same book, in chapter 2, that same language is used. So we know that all things were created, and Paul specifically pulls out, out of all created things, governmental structures, and says these things were created through him and for him. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, same kind of language, he says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. By triumphing over them in him. So the one thing that he points out in chapter 1 of all creation, and chapter 2 he actually brings those things back and says those particular things. And so we're assuming then that we're talking about the governmental structures that are not used for the Lord, but are used for evil things, to use, that are used against the Lord. He says, ultimately, those things he's going to disarm, put them in open shame by triumphing them over those things in him. That means ultimately his cross, the gospel of Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross, that is going to be the ultimate thing that triumphs over any kind of ruler, authority, throne, dominion, anything. So what's going on here? What's, what's he trying to do? John Piper looking at this, this is awesome. He says, therefore, when Paul says the rulers and authorities were created by Christ and for Christ, he means that God created them knowing what they would become and how the very evil role that they would play, they would glorify Christ eventually. So the ultimate, um, even though they're used for evil, the ultimate end of those things are final judgment or final triumph of God over those things. And that still brings God glory. Knowing everything they would become, he created them still. And as he created them, he created them for the glory of Christ. Which brings me back to something I said in the very beginning, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. You have nothing to fret about. This world, this nation should not scare you or concern you. Jesus created everything and ultimately triumphs over everything. In Colossians 2 chapter 8, I'm sorry, Colossians 2 verse 8, He says something this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in Colossae, in the city of Colossae at this particular time, people had come in and started trying to teach uh, philosophies. And these philosophies, or as they say, empty philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions, elemental spirits, these things were being used as saying that they're more important or more supreme than Christ. And what Paul's saying is that these great truths about Christ that we're seeing, Paul is protecting the people of Colossae and thereby us away from these empty philosophies and the traditions that don't cherish the supremacy of Christ. 
And when we embrace the great truths of Jesus, then we're not easily swept away then into man-centered trends or traditions. Whether it be what happened two weeks ago or anything, because we treasure Christ so much, the man-centered things or the man-centered sinful inclinations, government structures, policies, whatever you want to call it, are not alluring to us. But instead, he's wanting us to, Paul is wanting to make crystal clear that when Christians who can feel in our world so small and so vulnerable, because we live in these crazy last end times that I read from 2 Timothy 3, where everybody's hostile, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, their parents, ungrateful, unholy. We can feel so small, Christians. We can feel so vulnerable when we hear about these thrones and dominions, these rulers and authorities seemingly having or exercising some kind of power over us. But instead, as we lean back over into the great truths of Colossians 1 about Jesus, we can have knowledge beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ has authority over all those things and they cannot do anything, rulers, dominions, powers, authorities, without God's sovereign permission. And he has created these things and one day they will bring him glory ultimately. So Paul's wanting us to see that and feel that our salvation in Christ is absolutely invincible and that we have no reason to fret because he has, as it says in 15, disarmed everything and put them one day in ultimate shame and triumph over them because of his cross. So this particular one, all things were created by him, all things were created through him, and all things were created for him. Now that's just kind of addressing something of the day. Um, but let's, let's talk about something maybe a little bit more practical, maybe a little bit more application-oriented to you. Because all things were created by God, these concepts and governing authorities and trees and water. It's easy to kind of just talk about the stuff out there. But also... If we're talking about created things, not only were those things created by God, but you were created by God. You were created by God. You were created not just by him, but you were created through him. You're made in his image and you're created for him. You're part of this creation that's also, also that is not just supposed to one day ultimately bring glory to God, but right now presently as believers in Christ bring glory to God. So what does that look like for you then? How does that change the way you live, knowing that you were specifically, uniquely created and, and put forth in this particular day in South Carolina in 2015? You weren't created in Rome in the first century. You weren't created in England in the seventh century. You were created to live in America in the 21st century. How does that then play out for you every day to know that I was created by God now and I need to bring glory to God now? What does your life look like? How can you with everything in you, intentionally live out living for his glory right now. Because not only was creation created by him, but you're part of that, and you're created for him as well. We need to keep moving because I've probably taken too long. So let's keep going. But you were created for him to worship. 17, he is before all things. Jesus Christ is before all things. So what we mean by that is this. There was not anything that was made that he was not already eternally before. Everything that was made, that ever has been made, he has always been eternally before all those things. Now, if you've ever seen The Matrix, whenever he goes and sees the, whatever she's called, where he knocks over the lamp and then he 
says, I'm sorry, and then she says, um, well, here's one that's really going to bake your noodle. If I hadn't said, watch out for the lamp, would you have really knocked it over? That little, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but reading that, it bakes my noodle. Like, it makes my brain explode. Like, okay, there's not anything that was made that he was not already eternally before. So how does that, how does that work then? What, what was going on then before things were made? Like, what was going on in the Trinity? And how does, I mean, I understand like eternal in the future. Like, because we're there in some kind of capacity, we're all going to keep existing. But before creation, that's also forever and eternal and, and infinite. I don't, what are they doing? <laughs> or were they doing? Can I, is that even right words to say? What were they doing? Is that how you describe it? They were existing, the Trinity. He was existing. God was existing. But what we, can, what we can say is this, is that he is before all things. And because of that, we can say that the important truth, I think, to pull out of this is this. God is the reason that everything exists and everything receives its importance or its significance because Christ exists preeminently. Christ exists forever. And therefore, all of us and everything receives or is given its importance because it was you were created by God. He, here's something even more amazing. He didn't need to create in order to be glorified. He could have not created anything and still be just as glorified as he is right now by us doing it. But he did it anyway. He didn't create out of necessity. No one was saying, you've got to create in order to get more glory. But instead, his kindness and his good pleasure is what led him to give us life and create everything. So he is before all things. Next one. In him, all things hold together. This is quite, quite amazing when you think about it. Jesus, this literally means Jesus is sustaining all things. He's holding them together. He upholds them, as Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds them by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. Now, we know that in Genesis 1, he created with a word. Not only did he create with the word, but he literally, after he created, he upholds all the universe with his word. This means all the galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies were created just by saying, let there be. And since language, words for God are, are so powerful and strong that they can create, words can also uphold. Not only they give life, but from that moment until forever, they're continually being sustained by the word of his power. That's amazing power amazing power that they can speak things into existence and then forever be upheld and sustained just by language. And so if Christ can uphold astronomically large things, galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies with the word of his power, certainly the small little created being you are, he can sustain. That's an amazing promise. When we think about He's uphold. It's not like God needed to have a really good workout and he's like straining to uphold the galaxies. I got him. I got him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold him forever. It's just boom, upheld. Upheld by the word of his power. And if he can do that forever, that astronomically amazing power is also sustaining and upholding you. He can completely and forever sustain you. And he does sustain you every second 
Every second you draw a breath, He's continually sustaining you. Continually. Forever. That's amazing reason to give Him all the glory He is due. Next one. Not only is He um, holding all things together, Spurgeon, as we move out of 17 into 18, Spurgeon says, Paul's next sentence is the sweetest, to have, is the sweetest of all. He is the head of the body, the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. So if you've been with us a little while, you know that we've been talking about the concept of church and what it means to be the church. And that when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, in that little section, it talks about the church. And when it does, it uses a metaphor for the church as the church being the body. And it says that we're all members of the body. By the way, if you didn't know, that's why church uses the word member and membership. It's not like they drew it from the country club. I know what we need to say. The country club uses member. We should say you're a church member. No, no, no. They stole it from us and it came from the Bible. The word member, being a member of a church, means that you're a a member of the body. So if you're an eye or if you're an arm or you're the, the left pinky fingernail or you, you, seem, you think you're just totally insignificant, the, the teachings of 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14 help you see that there is no more significant body part than the other. If you're an arm or a leg or a knee or a whatever, you're all part of the body and you're all uniquely important. So Paul is building on those teachings of the fact that the church is the body and he's saying, here, when we talk about the church being the body, Jesus is the head of the body. And the whole point that he's trying to make is this. Calvin says, the life of the church flows from Christ. In other words, the body receives life because of the head. Paul's design in saying he's the head of the body of the church is trying to display to us Christ's headship over the church. It's never the reverse. It's never that the church is the head over Christ. It's always that Christ is the head over the church, meaning Jesus calls the shots. And since he calls the shots, we as the church have one decision, obedience or non-obedience. Not indifference, not, let me take into consideration, not deliberation, but obedience or non-obedience. That's our decision as the body. And what he's trying to point us to is that as the church, we have to fully submit into Christ as our head. If Christ is the head and the church is the body, the church must obey. Begs the question, obey what? Well, I want to bring this back. I said it two weeks ago. And the reason why I want to bring it back is because I said it, when I said it two weeks ago, I said the sermon from two weeks ago is absolutely crucial for Remedy Church. If you missed the sermon for from two weeks ago, and you're a part of Remedy, you need to go back and you need to download it off iTunes or the website and listen to it because it's absolutely crucial for you to know if you're going to be at Remedy for an extended period of time, it's crucial for you to know what's my job at Remedy Church? What am I supposed to do? What's my responsibility as a member of Remedy Church? It's on that sermon. But if you missed it, I'm going to tell you right now anyway. (laughs) We're starting with the premise that Jesus said, since he's the head and we're the body, We have to obey what he tells us. What is it that he's told us? What is it that we're supposed to obey? We're supposed to obey the mission. And I said it two weeks ago. I said, what God has always had is the mission to seek and save the lost. And therefore, it's 
first place. It was the first thing. And so in order to fulfill the mission, he created the church to go fulfill the mission. It wasn't the reverse. It wasn't like he created the church and he's like, oh, I love you. Come over to my house. I need to have something for you to do here. I need to entertain. I know what I'll do. I'll create this thing for you to do called a mission. Hey, church, go do that mission that I just created. It's the reverse. The mission is first and he created the church to go do the mission. So you exist to do mission. You, it's not like you just existed anyway and God gave you something to do mission. You exist because of the mission. So if Christ is the head and we're the body and we obey him, we're to obey what this commandment is, is which is the mission. Here's, I, I told you last two weeks ago, I want to read it to you just so you know, the five important facets for Remedy Church to do mission. Right out of 2 Kings 5. The first thing is to notice the great need in our city, neighborhood, sphere of influence. What's my job as a member of Remedy Church? These five things. These are your job. And you have to do these things if you want to be obedient because I'm not making this stuff. It's not FUD stuff. It's God stuff. And so this is you willingly choosing to obey or disobey God to fulfill his mission. First is to notice the great need in our city, neighborhood, spheres of influence. You have to notice it. I've got a, two, I've got a son and he's two. Um, I've got a lot, but there's one of them that's two. And so (laughs) whenever it's time to feed him and he doesn't want, this is what he does. And he thinks in his two-year-old mind that because he's doing this, that I can't see him. And that he, as long as he's doing this, he doesn't have to realize that there's food around him and he doesn't notice. And I think that this is exactly what we can do. We can just like little Liam Instead of noticing the great need in our city, neighborhood, and spheres of influence, we can just do like this. And as long as we do like this, it's not there. In my mind, it's not even there. But that's not obeying the mission of God. Obeying the mission of God first is to start noticing. Take the myopic eye off of us and look around and start seeing our city. Start seeing our neighborhood and the sphere of influence. You all have people that you hang out with that I don't hang out with. You see more that I don't see. Start hanging around them and notice the great need in your city because it's everywhere. After you notice, the second thing is be intentionally bold for Christ. I, I still remain steadfast in saying, I think this is the hardest one. I think most of us likely notice. But the bold part is where we just, we just can't bring ourselves to it. We notice it and we just won't say anything. But it's, it's not loving to not say anything. I know it's difficult to be bold. But when we notice, we have to take that final like, okay, God, only you can do this bold step to actually start being the church. But this is what it looks like. Number three, notice the specific opportunities that God places in your life. You have opportunities that I don't have because I don't live in your house and I don't live your life and I don't have your kids or your wife or your husband or your job or whatever. So I've got specific opportunities you have. You have specific opportunities that I don't have. I've got specific opportunities that you don't have. We, we all have specific things, right? And those things are given to us by God. And so when we notice, we have to be bold. We have to actually start seeing the specific opportunities that God places in our life, number four. And then when that happens, find and meet people's physical needs that live, work, and play around you. Once you notice, you have to start finding and meeting the physical needs. This is being obedient to God. Whenever in Matthew, I think it's chapter 23, when Jesus says, uh, I was in jail and you didn't visit me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I had no clothes and you didn't give them to me. Like these are the things 
that we're supposed to do. It's clear that the Lord wants us to do this. And this doesn't just have to be for, for adults, little kids. Y'all can do this. If you have a baseball team or a soccer team that you play on and somebody on your team doesn't have cleats, you can notice that. Or little kids, you can notice it and tell your parents you can buy one for $15 at Academy. You can start meeting needs. And as you do that, we're not just humanitarians in general. We don't just do things for the sake of being good people. We, we, we're going to finally get to number five. The boldness is going to be intentionally bold. And the whole point, one of the whole points is always looking for the moment where you can tell them the gospel and they can believe in Jesus and be forgiven of their sins. It's not a backdoor kind of like flim flam. We're just trying to only be a nice just so you'll meet Jesus. We are being nice because that's what God commands us. We're not just trying to win them over with some kind of, you know, like used car salesman. I hope you're not a used car salesman. That should have, probably should have said that. Like trying to pull a fast one on you. Probably not the best illustration, but uh, forgive me if I said it wrong. But you know what I mean? Like we're not just trying to get you in the door and be nice to you so that you can meet Jesus now. Ha ha, I only did it so you can meet. Like we're meeting that need because we care and we love you and we want you to be fed or have things that are happening. But while we're doing that, we want you to know that you can have Christ who is the remedy, not just a short-term remedy to your small physical need, but instead your greatest spiritual need. You are the church. Listen, it was the very last thing he said to us before he ascended. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them all that I observed. And I with you all the way to the end of the age. It's the very last thing he said to us is go make disciples. And he's the head and we're the body. So fulfilling the mission is not well, maybe I can, maybe I want to deliver it and get back to you, Jesus. Since he's the head, our only right response is to be in obedience to him. You have to, as a believer, tell people about Jesus. The results are the Lord's. But you have to tell. Because you're the church. No one else will do that for the church. It's the church's job. Unbelievers will not preach the gospel for us. We have to do it. So that's, he is the head of the body of the church. The next one is, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We're going to stick all three of those up. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. These are beautiful truths about Christ. Let me kind of take them maybe backwards for you. We'll start in the middle and go backwards. The firstborn from the dead. And then we can understand the beginning. The first, he's the firstborn from the dead. It means that his rising from the dead is unique in comparison to anybody else's. Jesus did make other people raise from the dead, but theirs was different than Jesus because you know what happened? They died again. They still died. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't die again. When he rose from the dead, he remained permanently alive forever, which is a unique resurrection. No one else has had that. And so since he's the firstborn from among the dead, meaning that he's the one who rose from the dead and never died again, his rising from the dead or being resurrected is completely unique. And it demonstrates to us then that we know for sure our sin can be defeated. And so we, since we know our sin's defeated, his rising from the dead compared to all other risings from the dead is the supreme most important one. So he is the firstborn from, from among the dead. So that means that he's the beginning. All of this now 
this means that everything now begins with him, not with Lazarus or Eutychus or anybody else that died and rose back from the dead. But everything finds its beginning in Jesus because he's the one that when he rose from the dead didn't die again. Our lives, when we come to Christ since he's the beginning, now find and truly take their new beginning. Their, in the Greek, kinekitesis, their new creation. Everybody that's in Christ is now a new creation. Behold, the old has passed and the new has come. So since he is the beginning, we truly find our beginning, our spiritual birth because of the resurrection. And now our lives have meaning. Now our lives have significance. And it's rooted and only found in Christ's beginning. And then now that we know that, that's why we say he is preeminent. So Jesus is the beginning because he's the firstborn from the dead so that he might have preeminence. That's just supreme first place. Supreme, it's not like, you know, first place, second place, third. It's like first place, second place, third place, way down here. And my hand can't reach high enough for first. Like supreme preeminence first place. And when we understand that he's the firstborn from the dead and he's the beginning, therefore he is now preeminent supreme first place, not just conceptually, but with us personally in our own hearts. Nothing rules and reigns my heart because this is what should be true in all of us. Nothing should rule and reign in my heart except for Christ. He should be supreme first place because he was the beginning and because he's the firstborn from the dead, he's declared these things of me. He has supreme first place in everything, especially our hearts. Next one, verse uh, next, what are we at? 19? <laughs> For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is just a restatement of Colossians 2.9, or Colossians 2.9 is a restatement of it. Um, Jesus, this means that he's 100% God when he lived on earth. He is 100% God and therefore completely righteous. Because he's God dwelling on earth, we can trust that he actually did live a perfect life. He never sinned. And that because of that, he was the actual perfect sacrifice. And because he was the actual perfect perfect sacrifice that lived the perfect life that he truly did absorb all the wrath of the father for us therefore there is no wrath ever reserved for you no anger reserved for you and so all christ has for you now is love never anger there might be discipline but it's not angry discipline it's loving discipline all christ has for you i I was at camp last week um and i was was it last week yeah week before i was at camp i was a camp pastor and Whenever I was preaching, we had a little decision time on, the, on Thursday because the Holy Spirit, you know, he's only allowed to move on Thursdays at camp. And so, you know, he's moving and people are coming forward. And this one kid, he's talking to me. He doesn't, he's, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. And he's a believer, but he just feels like God's angry at him. And I had to, maybe for the first time, explain to him, as a believer in Christ, the Lord is never angry at you anymore. All of that anger, which was was right, was put completely on Jesus. All the fullness of all the anger towards you about sin was all put on him. And then all the love that he would ever feel for his own son. Imagine the love of the father that he has for the son. That is then put on you. So now, little son, all he has for you is love, not anger. And it's just like I opened up a whole new world for him. This is how the Lord feels about us. Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so since that's the case, 
He lived a perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice. He absorbed all the wrath of God. And now we are completely righteous. And God is never, ever angry at us, but loving. Now, again, he might discipline you. He disciplines me all the time for my dumb, dumb decisions I make. But it's loving discipline, not angry discipline. The best illustration we have is is being a parent. I don't discipline my kids because I hate them. I discipline because I love them. Not every dad's perfect, so maybe it's always not the perfect illustration. But anyway, last two. Verse 20. And through him, for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making by making peace with his blood shed on the cross. So 14 and 15 are, he reconciles all things to himself. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. You can see those. He reconciles all things to himself, and he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. No one else reconciles anybody to God except for Jesus. He is the one who reconciles all things to God. He's the only one that brings us to God. He's the only one that can bring us to God. He's the only one that can reconcile. And because of that, his death then brings us peace with God. Now, we were not interested in being reconciled with God. The truth is, if you keep reading in verse 21, that we were willfully choosing to be enemies of God. It says it in 21, it says, and you who are once alienated, and you can just put willful, willfully choosing to be alienated, that's implicit in the word hostile. This, uh, it's kind of understood that this, it says you are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who we were before, willfully choosing to sin against the Lord all we could. But now, because of the cross, he has reconciled you. He has reconciled all things to himself. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So because of his cross, because of his death, this is what's true of you now in order to literally consider this concept. Consider it, you know, I have the privilege of whenever I do weddings, um, get to stand at the front whenever the bride comes down. And so it, this in a very, very sense is a, is a presentation. Whenever, you know, the doors open and she walks down, this is a, a huge stage for a presentation of the bride to her groom. That's, I mean, that's, that's really what it is. Here she is, as beautiful as she can possibly be. Here she comes right now. Like, this is the supreme moment of you to look on to. She's being presented to you. And so whenever I stand up front, because I'm right by the groom, I don't usually look at the bride. I, I look for a second, and I always just look at the groom because he's standing right beside me. I actually have to tell him, like, you stand up there. You know, you get up there. I won't. But I watch his face generally because usually the groom's face is just like tears. Like, I can't believe, look at this. Oh, my gosh. The woman of my dreams is my wife. Oh, my gosh, she's walking down to me right now. Butterflies don't throw up. You know, like, that's how they feel. Um, but the beautiful point of that is there is a presentation of beauty to the husband take that same word picture that same thing and this is exactly what's happening here because of Christ's death on the cross you are being presented to him but as you're being presented to him this is how you're being presented you're being presented holy and your walk down the center aisle to Christ because of his cross is being presented to him not as some ragged, 
worn out, dirty, wretched, gross sinner. But instead, it's being presented to him as holy and blameless and above reproach. I can remember 20-something years ago, I was sitting in the Charleston Southern office with my friend Andy, and he had just had a a rough week. He's a believer. He's a pastor actually out in San Francisco right now. Um, And he had just had a rough week. And I remember, I just read this verse. I had come across it, and he was saying this rough week he had. And I was like, hey, man, I want to tell you something. This is what's true of you. I didn't have the ESV back then, so I had to use the NIV, which, you know, the Lord still used. Um, I'm just kidding. This is what I said. I said, Andy, this is what's true of you. You are right now, because of Christ, he has reconciled you because of his cross. You are right now, in the eyes of Jesus, holy in his sight, without blemish. I know you feel like you've got all kinds of blemishes right now. I know you feel like, man, you've just, you've just messed up. But right now, in Christ... The presentation of the bride walking down the aisle before Jesus, what's true of you is that you are holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You are holy, you are blameless, and you are above reproach. The tears just welled up in his eyes. And again, I mean, this is not a new truth. This is a truth he is familiar with. Tears just welled up in his eyes and he could not get over the fact in that moment that Christ had declared him and forgiven him of those things. And what's true now is that he's holy, free from accusation, and without blemish. And I pray this morning that you would also see this as the most beautiful thing in the world and that you'll enjoy this great truth based on all these foundational things about Christ, what he's done for us, that we can enjoy this relationship with God, this amazing 15 things about him and vastly more because of what he's done for us and that our highest joy can be in him. I want to close by reading an old hymn. I'm not going to sing it, but this hymn is pretty awesome. It's about Christ. If you notice, the songs that we're singing are about Christ today. They're always about Jesus. You're like, they're always about Jesus. Yes, they are. But what we try to do is pick songs that just describe the person of Jesus today. And so after this, you're going to sing songs about Jesus because that's what this is, is a Christ hymn, a song about Jesus. But this hymn is called Fairest Floor Jesus. It's about Christ. It says fairest, or it's just another way of saying beautiful. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, son of God and son of man, you will I cherish, you will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations, Son of God and Son of man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine, be yours. Beautiful hymn about who Christ is. In this text, what we've seen about Christ is this, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Son of man, he is the mediator, he is the sacrifice, he is the head of the church, He's the ultimate end of all worship. He's the preeminent God. He's the sustainer of life. He's the reconciler of all things. And that he himself is God. And worthy of our worship. Let's give it to him now. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship. I pray that as we sing songs that just describe just how wonderful you are and who you are, that our souls would well up with joy. And these great truths, maybe we've heard many times, that the worship of you would be so full in this room. 
brush it away with our hands. It's so full. That would just overtake us. And that we wouldn't just exalt and praise you, but we would exalt. That we would glory, find our deepest joy and happiness in giving you praise.